Welcome to Song and Plants. My name is Carmen Porter. In this episode, I was joined by Don Tipping of Siskiyou Seeds. His magnificent seed selections and educational offerings are an inspirational resource for beginner and seasoned gardeners alike. Our discussion centered around the colorful intricacies of Zia Maze. I hope you enjoy our conversation. So welcome to Song and Plants. Would you mind introducing yourself? Sure. Thanks. Um, well, my name is Don Tipping, and I live here in the Siskiyou Mountains of southwestern Oregon, where I've had a farm called Seven Seeds Farm since 1997. And I also have a seed company where we grow flowers, vegetables, herbs, and some small grains called Siskiyou Seeds that I started back in 2009. And that really comprises the bulk of what we do here on the farm and as a team of people um, growing, selecting, trialing, and experimenting varieties that work in our climate. Our farm is pretty diverse. I have nine ponds that we've built here and a couple hundred fruit and nut trees, uh, a small flock of sheep and poultry. And both my boys were conceived, born, and raised here. And they're now 15 and 19. So that's kind of one of my primary areas of focus nowadays is really helping train them to be good young men. Beautiful. What drew you to corn? Well, corn, I think, you know, obviously a lot of us enter the world of corn through sweet corn, eating sweet corn. And I remember having an uncle when I was younger, a boy, and I'd go spend time on his farm. It was really an old farm, not actively being farmed. He'd let a neighbor graze cattle on it in Wyalusing, Pennsylvania on the Susquehanna River. And we'd drive down the road to a farmer to get sweet corn. And, you know, it, I, I would recall hearing all the superlatives of like the best sweet corn in the world. And then I began to realize that a lot of rural communities say they have the best sweet corn. And it always kind of marked a, a high moment of the summer. The later part of the summer is eating fresh corn on the cob. And so then getting into farming, it just seemed like one of the you know essential bucket list plants to grow. And when I first moved to Oregon, I had been going to college and living in Northern California. I went to school at UC Davis in near Sacramento, California. And I didn't really know the climate here. And I was coming from the Central Valley in a much longer, warmer season where you can grow a real wide diversity of crops to a much shorter mountain environment. And I remember seeding sweet corn May 1st, where here we can have frost all the way up until June 1st, but I didn't know that. So I actually showed up at the market at the Grants Pass Farmers Market as the first farmer when I was 25 years old years ago. Uh, with fresh sweet corn. And I, I, I always think back to that memory as like a very encouraging thing, because in farming, there can be many discouraging things, particularly with corn, because crows can eat the seed. Uh, you could, Gophers like to eat freshly planted cor corn seed, and you can plant it too early and the soil can be too moist and the seed will rot or just not come up. So to start off my farming journey, here of running my own farm with a successful sweet corn crop gave me some momentum to keep moving forward. And do you remember what the cultivar was? 
Yeah, it was uh, an old heirloom that's actually from Olympia, Washington. I, I think I grew two different kinds, but this one's called Hooker Sweet. And Ira Hooker had bred this uh, sweet corn to be able to mature in a very short season maritime climate. You know, Olympia is not known for its hot summers. So Hooker's only gets to be about five or six feet tall. And then it's a bicolor, meaning it's yellow and white. But then the seed matures to a, a deep blue. So it's a really interesting variety. And I've I've been growing that one ever since, and it's one we now offer seed of. So corn is one of those plants that it compels forming a relationship with it. Whereas I, I don't think I could say the same thing for something like eggplant, although perhaps if I lived in Southeast Asia where eggplant is, you know, originated from, I might feel differently. But corn is a crop of the Americas, so it's like a, an old friend that perhaps you meet as a younger person and then it keeps coming around and you develop a long-term relationship with it. I think one of the ways that's helped me to understand it is my friend and mentor, Bill McDorman, who ran a seed company for 28 years in Montana and then later started the Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance, uh, educational nonprofit around seed said that there were, and this is a bit of an oversimplification, but I think it's helpful for our purposes, that there's wheat people, rice people, and corn people. And when you look at the major civilizations that have arisen over the millennia, that is very much true. You know, so the wheat people were those of North Africa, the Fertile Crescent, and Europe. The rice people, rice originated in the Philippines and then spread throughout Southeast Asia and obviously to Japan and China and India. And then corn originated around Oaxaca, Mexico in the subtropical highlands and then spread north and south and became the staple grain of empires. And obviously we should give honorable mention to potatoes, quinoa, teff, and you know, some of the smaller grains, but those those are the exceptions where you know corn has really sustained empires and to this day here in the United States, if not North America, it is one of the primary drivers of civilization, sometimes not in ways that I necessarily agree with, like in terms of biofuel, ethanol, GMO, bioplastics, things like that. But it definitely comprises a huge amount of land surface. And then when we think about all the corn derivatives, whether it's tortillas, corn chips, high fructose corn syrup, and so on, it's uh, pretty ubiquitous in our, our society. Absolutely. And when you talk about that people tend to think about sweet corn when they think about corn, just because that's what most people are consuming when it's still in its yeah, its exactly. most raw form. But there are lots of different types of corn with lots of different purposes and uses and colors. Like you mentioned the blue in, in the, the kernel. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe start at the beginning because corn was originally a, a wild plant. It was a, a subtropical grass that was called Teosinte by the original peoples of that area. The Latin name is Zia Mexicana. And that early plant uh, had no cob, and it just had these small triangular hard seeds that formed on a stem. And somehow, you know, through human interaction and selection and probably a, a dash of magic, it 
has become these other forms of corn. So teosinte was developed into the progenitor of what we call a flint corn, which is like a flower corn with a much harder pericarp, the outer form of the seed. Mm-hmm. Uh, a flint corn that a lot of people might be familiar with would be popcorn is a flint corn. And you can see how those kernels are really hard. But also, if you've ever had hominy, grits, pasole, that type of thing, that would be, or polenta is made from a flint corn. Once corn got into North America through the Apache people and, and other tribes of that desert southwest area, they did further selection for millability to get to a finer flour. And that's where we get flour corn, which is a later development. Sweet corn, too, is a more modern concept, but there are varieties that go back a few centuries. So now you can see this range of flint corns, flower corns, popcorns, sweet corns. And then in more modern times in the United States, in the Corn Belt, people cross sweet corn with flower corn to create dent corn. And that is the predominant like animal feed and feedstock for, you know, agri-industrial processes. So all of those will cross-pollinate with one another, with the exception of popcorn, that's sort of like a distant relative. So you can actually grow sweet corn or flower corn or flint corn right next to popcorn, and the popcorn will not cross-pollinate. However, flower corn will cross with sweet corn, which will affect its edibility. So, you know, getting, it's sort of like as you make a relationship with any plant, you realize it just gets deeper and deeper and corn is one of uh, a myriad of plants that has what are called jumping genes or transposons. And in the popular lingo, we're beginning to become familiar, many people with the term of epigenetics. So jumping genes are basically an epigenetic capability that some plants have. Zinnias are another one that allow the plant to respond to the environment within the growing season and change its form. So My friend and colleague, Dr. Walter Goldstein, he's up in Wisconsin, and he's the head of the Mandaman Institute, and he works with breeding high-nutrition corns, also corn that will exude its own nitrogen. They call it nitrogen-fixing corn, and also corn that resists being crossed uh, with GMOs. He believes, and he's a full-on scientist, PhD, plant breeder, and Mandaman is an Algonquin word up there in the area we now know as Wisconsin that uh, refers to a creator being. And he believes that the only way that corn could have jumped from teosinte to these, you know, what we know as flint corn is through prayer and some kind of magic. You know, as a geneticist and a scientist, he's like, that's such a big leap. It's still a mystery to most, you know, agronomists to this day. Wow. When you say that some of them cross and others do not, if somebody's wanting to grow corn and save their own seeds, how would they go about doing that? Well, if you only grow one type of corn, like let's use this hooker sweet corn, for instance, corn is a wind-pollinated grass. So the tassels up top are actually the male flower, the pollen-producing part of the plant, where the silks that form out of the emerging ear that's the female flower of it. So it's what's known as an imperfect flower. A perfect flower would have both the male and female, the pollen producing and receiving parts within the same flower. 
So basically corn, you know, the wind hits the tassels, the pollen generally just drops down onto the silks and then pollinates and fertilizes the ovules, the immature kernels. If you've ever been eating sweet corn and you notice some kernels that haven't plumped up or fully formed, those are basically ovules, you know, baby seeds, if you will, that were never fertilized. So each silk is connected to a kernel. And if you're ever shucking sweet corn and you look at it, you'll see it. There's a little dot on each kernel. And that's where each silk, which is really a female flower, was connected to it. I always think with seed saving, it's helpful to understand what's going on. Like if you were to have to explain it to a six-year-old or a seven-year-old, obviously you wouldn't use botanical terms, but if you had an ear of sweet corn or a whole plant, you could show them and I think they'd be able to grasp it. Whereas, you know, Western science oftentimes puts us in this very abstract notion. So to save seed from just growing one variety of corn, whether it's a flower corn, a popcorn, or a sweet corn, is really simple. Where it gets a little more complicated is if you have close neighbors who are also growing corn, or if you live in a region where corn is grown very widespread, then you have to worry about cross-pollination because corn pollen being carried on the wind can blow really far. However, if you have a good-sized corn patch, let's say 100 plants or so at least, then most of the pollination is going to be occurring right in that patch because you can imagine the likelihood of a stray pollen grain from a cornfield down the road from you getting into your patch and hitting a silk that hasn't already been pollinated by pollen directly above it on the tassel. And corn, if you shake the plant when it's shedding pollen, it, it produces it pretty abundantly. It's like dust. So the actual figures from my friend, uh, Dr. Bill Tracy, who is a corn breeder at the University of Wisconsin, is that if you move more than 200 feet from a corn patch, cross-pollination from other varieties drops to below 2%. So wow. I always encourage people, like, there's these rules around crossing and, you know, cross-pollination. However, there's so many exceptions to the rules because it's nature and nature can't be put in a box. It's, it all depends, you know, what's the humidity, you know, when, which way is the wind blowing? So like on our farm, I have a 40 acre farm and we routinely will produce two or three varieties of corn for seed. So part of how I manage that is through physical isolation. I'll put one patch of corn in a, the back corner of one field and another as far away in another field where it's separated by a strip of forest as I can. Another tool you can play around with is called timed isolation. So we actually start corn in our greenhouse April 1st into soil blocks, and then we transplant that out in early May into the field. Even if the soil's still cold, the, the seeds already sprouted in the greenhouse, and then that corn will be flowering in pollinating much earlier than one that we direct seed, let's say June 1st, you know, we've created a 60 day, two month timed isolation. So that's another way that we can produce seeds. So if, let's say you have a big garden and you want to grow a flower corn that really means a lot to you to grow your own tortillas, cornbread, that type of thing, then you could start that early and then plant a later planting of sweet corn, or you could physically isolate the patches from one another, but that's not always possible when somebody might have a smaller amount of land to be working with. Hmm. When you're saving your own seed and 
wanting to select for vigor in your location. Mm-hmm. How would you go about doing that? Well, a good way to do it, and I apply this technique in the greenhouse as well. Let's say I'm seeding plug trays or something or seeding in a row outside in the field, direct seeding. The plants that sprout first are going to be the most vigorous ones. They just have more oomph behind them. Oftentimes, that's the result of slightly larger seeds tend to have more vigor than smaller seeds. That's where seed saving using screens to sift out the big seeds from the little seeds is helpful. So with, more specifically with corn, you know, it, let's say I'm seeding five or six seeds per foot uh, in a row, then I'll be thinning that down to one plant every foot. Uh, so I might have two or three rows on a three foot wide bed and then plant more than I need and then I'm thinning. So when you're doing those actions like thinning, you're actually doing plant improvement work. It may not feel like highfalutin plant breeding, but you're making decisions that affect the future outcome. So if we're always selecting for seedling vigor, then you're giving the future progeny, particularly if you're seed saving, an advantage. So like in the greenhouse, let's say I'm seeding cabbage, I might plant two or three seeds for every cell, and then I pull out all but the largest, most vigorous one. And overseeding in this way, planting more than you actually need, also is a way to ensure a nice full stand. Because corn, it's being a grass. I know it doesn't look like grass that we know of it, but it is a grass, as are wheat and rye and oats and sugarcane, things like that. It does well in a stand as like a population growing together and they support one another. If you just have one lonely corn plant out there, the likelihood of the wind knocking it over is quite high. And that also benefits pollination. So they always say with corn, you want to grow it more in a patch than a row. And that patch resists plants being knocked over by the wind, which is known as lodging, and also pollinates better. So I guess when you're saying developing a relationship with the plant, A lot has to do with observation and seeing how it's growing and how it grows in your location. But also when you're touching on the the history of it and where the plant comes from, that seems to play into it quite a bit as well. Yeah, it's hard to prove scientifically, but basically seeds have memory. So for instance, here's a good anecdotal story. I had the opportunity to travel in Ecuador a number of years ago and brought back some of the really interesting corns they have, which if you've ever been there or seen, you know, throughout the Andean region, I imagine it's similar in Peru and Bolivia and the highlands of Colombia. But they have these corns that are kind of like really chunky and knobby with a lot of space between the rows and the kernels might be the size of your thumbnail or larger and really beautiful speckled patterns and stuff. So I was really excited to grow this and I planted it back up here in Oregon around June 1st and the plants grew abundantly and they kept growing and growing and growing. Some of them got to be 18 to 20 feet tall with stalks that were almost the size of your wrist, but they didn't make ears until mid-September and for us we get frost right around the beginning of October so they weren't able to mature and so in thinking about that corn is a subtropical grass so it's used to not much difference between the length of a summer day and a winter day so when you bring it up here where we have these incredibly long days we're north of 42 degrees latitude where I'm at and 
So the plants just keep growing and growing and growing. And the decrease in day length past the summer solstice is what triggers ear formation and flowering. So over time, people have brought corn more north. You know, there's native varieties to southern Canada that only get two or three feet tall, but still make good sized ears. Those probably wouldn't do well down close to the equator either, just like the Peruvian and Ecuadorian corns don't do well here. So this idea that seeds have memory and, you know, because we're never told that we're doing this, but every time you're saving seed, you're basically doing plant breeding, whether you're applying logic and thoughtfulness to it or not. So particularly if you're not saving seed from every plant, but choosing the better ones. So let's say you have a corn that you're trying to adapt to a more northern region or a shorter season or wetter. You just keep planting it, saving seed from the ones that do the best. Plant those, keep doing that over and over. And eventually you build up resilience. You know, So corn didn't make it from Mexico to Winnipeg in a short amount of time. That took centuries of slowly adapting to a new environment. Likewise, the way you grow it has an effect. So the Hopi and Navajo Diné farmers of the Southwest Four Corners region, they are the ones that developed what we know as the three sisters uh, approach to growing corn. And they would have a bag with corn, beans, and squash, and oftentimes sunflowers, which was known as the fourth sister in it. And they would have a planting stick and they would jab that stick into the sandy soils and put all those seeds together 10 to 12 inches deep. And then the corn being a monocot, meaning the first leaf is just one single one and kind of pointy, it could push up from that deep planting. Whereas the squash and the beans and the sunflower being dicots, they have the two cotyledons, dicot. You know, they take longer to push up. So the corn's already gonna be a few inches high and they might put seven to 10 corn seeds and you know a similar amount of squash and beans and stuff in that hole. But the corn pushes up through, but then it's rooted deep down so it can survive periods of drought there until they get the monsoons, which typically come in July throughout the Southwest that then can water that corn. But they might only plant on like a grid every 10 to 12 feet. So the plant roots have a lot of soil to harvest moisture from. If you do that approach up here in Oregon or any northern latitude, if you plant 10, 12 inches deep, the seed will just rot. So you know, we can still do that three sisters approach, but you have to modify your technique and plant the corn in mounds. You can still do it every you know seven to 10 feet, but then come back 10 days or two weeks later and plant the squash and beans that will grow and fill in the space below and the beans you can imagine let's say you have seven corn plants all sprouting from one spot and remember what i said about corn lodging when the wind blows well if you only have one every 10 feet isn't the wind just going to knock it over but then you see the brilliance in these indigenous farming techniques which i've been a student of traditional ecological knowledge is looking at indigenous practices for agriculture and living it's actually a fairly sophisticated thing that they had no no fallback. They had to grow the food they eat or otherwise they'd starve. So applying that technology to three sisters, you can imagine how the pole beans grew up and then linked together and almost wove a basket with those corn stalks, holding it together like guy wires so that it could move as a unit in the wind and resist blowing over. 
another thing is as you move south corn typically doesn't grow as tall as you go north it grows taller because of our longer summer days and tall corn tends to blow over so there are advantages to breeding for shorter stature also it's more efficient with sunlight you know instead of using the sunlight and fertility to grow these giant stalks it's shorter and putting the energy into producing ears because we also have to remember back with our ancestors who grew corn whether they're our direct, you know, blood ancestors or just our, our human family ancestors, which is more what I'm referring to, they needed the stocks oftentimes for a building material, a fuel source, or feeding livestock. So tall stocks was an advantage where in our modern times, we typically are just wanting the, the ear, the seed part. So there's a lot of considerations and that's why making a relationship with it and growing lots of different kinds. So you know, with any plant species, when people are wanting to get to know it, I always encourage them to grow as many different kinds as you can and learn what the plant has to teach you. Certera Murado, deep burgundy purple, the silks, the tassels, the stalks, the ears are so deep burgundy red that they'll dye your fingers and your lips red if you eat them fresh. You know, so like, there's so much to all this and it's an emerging relationship obviously our ancestors didn't make corn syrup but you can also cut up the stalks and and juice them and they have a lot of sugar in them so you know just like stay curious to the journey that this plant is taking us on and i with a caveat of i think that the gmo direction is uh, leading us down a dead end that isn't in the advantage of the reproduction of the plant. And I think that's why we have to keep the, the beauty and the gift that a plant like corn gives to us central to how we apply our curiosity. Also, the GMO is we're trying to lead the plant instead of it being a dynamic relationship. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's not in the interest of the plant to be configured in that way. And eventually, if you were to take GMO corn seed and just keep planting it, its epigenetic North Star would lead it back to being a vital plant. And I think that is an important thing. It's this guilt and shame that humanity carries that we're separate from nature and we've bespoiled nature, but we're just a part of it. And sometimes we get things wrong and nature's far more powerful. Like we can't kill the earth or destroy an ecosystem. We can change an ecosystem to one of, you know, lesser productivity and diversity. But in time, we'll, we'll grow out of this juvenile uh, industrial relationship with that plant because it's not ultimately, all it does is increase profits for the chemical makers. It isn't a better plant. So I don't lose too much sleep about that. No, like what you're saying with the plant will offer different benefits if you're open and curious to explore them. Yeah, totally. Different colors of corn have different nutritional content. Exactly. So selecting is, is a dynamic relationship Yeah. with surprises. Yeah. And like these high phytonutrient corns I was referring to, the burgundy ones, they have really high levels of anthocyanin. So, you know, whereas in the late summer, you don't really have to worry about anthocyanin if you're eating blueberries, blackberries, this type of thing. But you can imagine flower corn is something that you would eat as a staple throughout the year. So in the absence of imported fruits to give you your vitamins in the winter, things like corn, you know, we can breed in 
the higher levels of plant pigment and all plant pigments are antioxidants and have value and this is something uh, dr phil simon who's a plant breeder mainly works with carrots has demonstrated this in his work with colored carrots that different colors have different nutrients different colored onions have different nutrients they're not interchangeable so that's very much true in corn and there's such a wide diversity of color in it and if you look at indigenous agriculture particularly in the southwest they had relationships through the different color corns for specific purposes and they would you know maintain them as distinct seed stocks by growing them in isolation and even these people that were not formally educated in you know in a university context learned and understood this and it could only have been through that direct relationship and observation which is you know where empirical knowledge actually comes from what were some of the purposes or relationships that they developed with the different types of corn from my understanding and having had the good fortune to become friends with you know some seed keepers in that area and i know it's similar for the iroquois people the various confederated tribes up there in you know upstate new york and surrounding areas whether it's the mohawk Haudenosaunee or the seneca or the cayuga these were corn peoples too but it really started down in the southwest and they would have a popcorn a sweet corn a flint corn and a flower corn and they would you know each region they'd keep these distinct but a, a really interesting story that i've heard a number of times from different people is that you know they would do all this effort to keep things pure but then they would periodically take some of their seed stock and grow in a mother garden with the adjacent tribes or clans to mix the genetics and then reintroduce that diverse mixture, you know, which we'd call a Grex or a synthetic cross in modern terms, back into their corn. And likewise, down in Mexico, it's still common practice to plant teosinte in and around your cornfield because of the belief that it strengthens the corn. And the belief too that strong corn creates strong people. So I think that's interesting. The among the Diné Navajo, they also gather corn pollen. And I had a Hopi elder friend recently share some with me, and he keeps it in a pouch around his neck. And uh, at a local ceremony he was at, and elder women go out in the cornfields under starlight and shake the plants when they're shedding pollen and then sift that down. The pollen's very small. When you look at the tassels, you'll see these, uh, they're basically these stamens, if you will, that are producing the pollen. And sometimes people mistakenly regard that as the pollen. They look like about the size of a grain of rice, but the pollen's actually produced on that. And it's this very fine dust. And being a man, I don't understand about this, but among those peoples there, the Hopi and the Diné, and I imagine the other corn tribes of that area, Pueblo people, the Ut, uh, Chiricahua, and so on. The elder women believe that that is a vehicle, much like uh, tobacco in the native ceremonial context, that's a like a key to praying to the creator. And I just think that that's so cool. Like, and also you can see that it's corn is their lifeline of sustenance or one of them. So relating to the corn pollen in this way is another way of humanity weaving itself in a more beautiful way into the fabric of interrelationships 
And I think there's a lot for us to learn about that uh, in our modern times. Yeah, even just on the fundamental level of connecting with the growing process and the food and the carbon cycle. Yeah, totally. And similarly, like a lot of people that make, you know, use flour corn, there's a process called nixtamalization, which is you cook the whole kernel and you boil it in water to which you've added lime, which is a strong base. And uh, wood ashes were traditionally used, but nowadays you can use uh, like what we'd call caustic lime or, you know, the kind of lime you'd use for plaster. And what that does is it denatures the proteins in the corn and makes the niacin, vitamin B3, available. But traditionally, people would use the corn cobs after they've taken the corn off to make a small fire and use the ash of that to cook the corn. You boil it with the lime or the wood ashes, you let it soak overnight, and then you rinse it really well. And that also kind of takes a lot of the skins the outer part of the corn kernel off that makes for you know, tortillas or tamales or whatever you're making. It's a better consistency of dough. And obviously that has higher levels of niacin, where if you just grind up corn kernels dry, the niacin is not available. And there's actually a nutritional disease called pellagra that uh, is really uh, beautifully chronicled in Gary Paul Nabham's book, Songs uh, with songbirds, wolves, and truffles that chronicles his journeys through Italy. And corn made it to Italy from the New World through the Colombian, you know, explosion uh, moving east. By 1520, people are already growing flint corn in Italy, and polenta is an Italian uh, invention. You can imagine poor people, you know, who were farmers back in 1500s, 1600s, and beyond, really valued this productive grain crop as a you know a new food stuff and polenta probably became a staple grain that poor people might eat three times a day but they never got the instructions about cooking with lime or hardwood ashes what we call nixtamalization and as a result and probably you know there's a myriad of factors that go into this the first italian immigrants to the united states had many of them had pellagra, this nutritional deficiency, niacin deficiency that shows up as uh, your hair being greasy, kind of a sallow cast to your skin, sunken eyes, and depleted energy. Some of the uh, ethnic stereotypes against early Italian Americans had nothing to do with where they came from, but from this nutritional deficiency. And it was such a source of shame for the Italian government that they didn't officially, in their uh, agriculture bulletins, suggest cooking your, you know, your corn for polenta with lime until 1910. They didn't recant on that. Wow. And I think when we go back through history, we'll see that a lot of the seeds of racist and, you know, xenophobia and stuff have to do with, you know, displaced people or, you know, the story of corn not having been properly translated from some Guatemalan grandmother in her native Mayan language to Italian explorers, colonialists. I, I find this fascinating. And as we yeah. drill deeper, you know, again, these seeds teach us stories that help us have a, a more broad, compassionate view of ultimately the displacement of peoples and their, their plants. Absolutely. And so what have your endeavors in the selection of 
corn bean? Like what developments have you come up with? Yeah. Thanks for asking that. I have uh, a dear friend, his name was Jonathan Spiro, and he really took on breeding sweet corn. He used to live here in my valley, he passed away a couple years ago. But we have a, a whole bunch of really cool open pollinated sweet corns that are as productive as the hybrids that he developed over time. Uh, I won't get into the weeds of how he did that, but it was all using traditional plant breeding. So I have worked on sweet corn personally as much because I had this friend and colleague that was really had devoted a lot of his life to this. And we carry a bunch of those varieties to this day. And in his passing, we're maintaining those genetics. His his wife, his widow, uh, let me have all the stock seed and he was working on an orange sweet corn before he died. So that's one I'm I'm working on right now. And it's still not ready for prime time. When you grow it, there's still ears that have both flower corn and sweet corn kernels on them, and it's not uniformly sweet. So we grew a couple hundred plants. I saved all the seed, and then we literally would spread out the dried seed. You know, So when you're saving sweet corn seed, you just let the ear go all the way to dry. You don't harvest it until the husk turns from green to sort of a papery uh, buff color. And me and my boys, who are 15 and 19 now, we'd spread out corn on the kitchen table and just sort like, all right, we only want the wrinkled kernels and we only want the most orange of the wrinkled kernels. And then now we're growing that and then we'll do it again next year and then the year beyond. And maybe by then we'll have an orange sweet corn. I've focused more personally on popcorn and flower corn. I have a variety called Cassiopeia. And when I first moved to Oregon, I was still a vegetarian and uh, popcorn had a pretty central role as a homegrown snack food. And then when I had little kids, you know, we'd make popcorn a lot. So I wanted to be able to grow my own. But a lot of popcorns require a pretty long season because they have to dry in the field because immature popcorn doesn't pop. Because how popcorn pops is this differential between the moisture inside the kernel and a very thick, hard seed coat. So as you heat that kernel, that moisture expands and pops the kernel. Immature popcorn just kind of like puffs. It doesn't really pop. In my journey uh, with all this, probably about 23 years ago now, I took as many different popcorns uh, that I could find that were not hybrid varieties, and I grew them together. And whenever somebody would share a new one with me, I would add it to the mix, so to speak. So I started with a multicolored variety from the Cochiti Pueblo along the uh, Rio Grande River in New Mexico. And I added in Pink Pearl, Tom Thumbs, Calico, Japanese Hollis White, Dakota Black, Glass Gem, uh, Red Baby Rice, like the list goes on. So now I have this very diverse multicolored corn that not only are the kernels multicolored, some plants produce red ears, some copper ears, some, you know, multicolored ones, some lavender ones. But the plants themselves, the silk, the pollen, the tassels, the stalks are multicolored. And I was always saving seed from the plants that were able to mature in my climate. And I'd, I'd literally go out with uh, flagging and I'd mark the best plants that produce the most ears so that I could know to save from those plants. So let's say I grow a thousand plants, I might save seed from only the hundred best. And you can really make a lot of improvement when you're able to do that. So that's one project. There's another uh, flower corn project I've been working on that is 
you know, in part to produce a great blue flower corn for the Pacific Northwest, but also to find a, a pathway forward around a sticky point of um, the quandary of cultural appropriation and kind of decolonizing corn, if you will. For many years, I grew this variety called Hopi Blue. At first, I was growing it on contract for a national seed company. But then once I had my own seed company, we kept growing it. And I was at a conference once and a young Hopi woman walked up and I had a big bowl of corn still on the cob and, and a kind of a display at our seed booth at this conference, this farming conference. And she's like, you grow this? And I looked at her and I started talking to her and I asked her, I was like, where are you from? Because I see she was wearing beadwork and I guess she might be native. And she's like, yeah, my parents were farmers and their parents were farmers. And, you know, we're, we live in Hopi land. And she's like, do you know what the word Hopi means? And I actually did because one of my teachers, I said, from what I understand it, it means the people. And she's like, yeah, do you see that it's silly you're calling this Hopi blue? Because it wasn't grown in Hopi land by Hopi people. You should give it your own name. It's your corn. You grew it. You have a relationship with it. My grandparents would laugh at you. They would, you know, be like impressed and amused that here's somebody in Oregon growing Hopi corn. But it's not, it's no longer Hopi corn if it's not grown by the Hopi people, you know, on Hopi land. So I, not only, I, and I feel like it's disingenuous to just change the name of something because that's also another thing, you know, a repercussion of colonialism is that we erase indigenous culture. So knowing what I know about plant breeding, which is not much, but it's a little bit, I crossed this Hopi blue with another one called Chiricahua blue, another one from the Southwest called Chihuahua blue, another one that had a breeder in Idaho had been working on a short season blue corn called Papa's blue. And I believe there's one other one in there. I'm drawing a blank on it right now. And I just let all these intermate in a really big cornfield, like 150 feet by 150 feet. So a little bit more than a quarter acre. And what was once known as Hopi Blue and all these other individual varieties, I just call Oregon Blue. And I try and explain in my variety description, like, here's this journey. If you get Oregon Blue corn this year, it's going to be different than what I have the next year or the year after that, because it's an evolving story over time. And when I first grew those Chihuahua blue ears, they be, being indigenous to the uh, New Mexico area, they grew super tall, like nine, 10 feet tall, which is impressive. But when we get a August windstorm, it's a bummer when your corn all gets knocked over and then you're out there with a shovel trying to stand it back upright and shovel soil around its base to help it out. So, you know, here's this ongoing story. And I don't know you know, if that's the best way forward. It's just my idea. But I really think that if we want to have these relationships, you have to put the hard work in and, and it might take a decade of working with something before you have something that and, and I still don't know, can you call this your own? Because in the words of Gary Nabam, who he's a was a professor at the University of Arizona and ethnobotanist with many books, he, he claimed that 99% of the improvement on the common crops that we grow and use today were completed, done 300 years ago. And what we've done in the last 300 years amounts to less than 1%. When you think we went from teosinte, like an inedible wild grass, to all these different amazing corns with indigenous knowledge is really impressive. And all this like GMO, hybrid, this, that, the other thing, 
it's it's not even like putting the cherry on top. It's it's a minimal contribution. As I would even say, it's a step backwards because it requires so much petroleum and fertilizer and fungicides and stuff. So you're actually polluting the land rather than corn giving to the land. So if you're curious about that that train of thought, Gary Nabam wrote an excellent book that was always required reading here on my farm for interns called Where Our Food Comes From, where he chronicles the origin of most of our food crops, which was work that was really begun by a Russian botanist named Nikolai Vavlov, who I think in time will be heralded up there with Darwin, uh, Rachel Carson, Vandana Shiva, you know, people of this ilk. He assembled the largest seed bank on the planet by 1910 and wrote a long book all about the origin of our food crops. And nobody had ever pieced this together before because colonization, we hadn't got it to that point where we're eating garlic here in the U.S. that was indigenous to Uzbekistan. And how many people even know that? So to me, that's really important work is how do we tell the complete story or as much as possible behind you know, the sources of our sustenance. By knowing the history, being able to adapt it forward, like... Exactly. Growing a relationship with the plant so that it can thrive in your microclimate, in your yeah. particular garden and conditions. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's one of the things I always say is the way forward is not backwards. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's important to learn from history, but... Things are different moving forward. We have different climate. People use things for different purposes, you know, like this natural dyeing with corn. I don't know if that was their traditional use or not. And again, applying creativity to all this. And, you know, one of the ways I look at that too is you look culturally who in our area, the United States or whatever bioregion you associate with, ate goji berries or quinoa or raw cacao or coconut oil. So, it's a continually evolving thing or like turmeric who really ate turmeric besides a spice in Indian cooking until we knew about the anti-inflammatory qualities of it. So there could be in the future plants that maybe are wild plants now that we recognize have some really valuable use that are not a traditional use. So again, learning the story of all that. I have a colleague up at OSU uh, named Shinji and he grew up on the North Island of Japan, Hokkaido. And he's a plant breeder and a horticulturalist. And he says that the kabocha squashes, you know, we were like, oh, these are in Japanese heirloom. He's like, no, they're not. That was a marketing name slapped on there by Dutch seed companies to try and appeal to the Japanese market. He says, as a boy growing up on Hokkaido, you never saw winter squash. People didn't eat winter squash. You know, it's an ongoing story, sometimes based on falsehoods. And that's where I, I think staying curious and open and open to the possibility that, you know, like I'm wrong or, or there's like a new, a new way to approach this or we were given bad information and have to uh, incorporate that into a more truthful understanding of, you know, because plants just are as they are and they either grow for you or they don't. That relationship is very different than with uh, animals or other humans. It can be as dynamic, though, if you're listening. Oh, for sure. Yeah, for sure. You know, and, and even a way more enigmatic because they don't come right out like our media does and hit you on the head with, here's what it is. <laughs> so yeah. unless it's uh, stinging nettles or poison oak or, you know, something <laughs> of this nature, blackberries.
Although stinging nettle is another one that is an incredibly nutrient rich and wonderful plant. Yeah. If you get past the stings. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But we, you know, so many people are just told the story. It's, it's poisonous. It's bad. Same with poison oak and poison ivy and sumac are all related and different traditional cultures would actually extract a black dye from the roots. Uh, those Japanese lacquer boxes that are that shiny black, that lacquer's taken from the roots of a sumac plant. You know, so instead of it being something to be feared, it was something to be celebrated and used in art and beauty. I think that's a compelling story. Well, even when we look into the history of medicinal herbs, mm -hmm. the majority of them are also considered toxic. Yeah. But it all just depends on the dose. So how can people find you? I trying to consolidate everything we do in our Siskiyou Seeds website. So not only do we sell seeds, but we have um, lots of information, growing tips, videos, uh, essays in our a link to our a blog that's just right there on our homepage. So there's quite a few YouTube videos and that type of thing. And closing out that piece, seed used to just be like, part of civilization that you didn't have civilization unless you saved seeds but it's something that many of us were divorced from uh oftentimes without our you know knowledge we were just born into a modern culture so for siskiyou seeds our north star is that we become irrelevant and obsolete because people are saving their own seeds there's so many bioregional seed hubs that we don't need internet-based seed companies our real goal is to give people you know quality adapted seeds growing tips and uh, we just started making seed cleaning screens or i'm going to move into some small kind of artisan blacksmith tools just to support this agrarian renaissance of people reincorporating that close relationship with plants and nature in that engaged way so that's really at the center of what we do but you know meanwhile that's how i personally pay the bills is growing and uh, reading and selecting and distributing uh, open pollinated seeds. So Siskiyou Seeds is where you can find all that. I'll put the link in the show notes with Great. any other links that you would like to have included. Your website is fantastic. The descriptions Thanks. are informative and the images are beautiful and inspiring. So definitely amazing work. Thank, Thank you very you much. for providing that yeah. <laughs> and service. I, I got to credit my team for sure. And increasingly there's, I have a whole circle of people that, that are helping make all that possible. So if you read the blog posts, you'll hopefully see more of them and their voices and faces telling the good story. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much for joining me. Is there anything else yeah. that you want to touch on? Well, I guess uh, because it's timely, I, I do offer a weekend intensive in seed saving for folks that are reasonably local. I call the Seed Academy, heralding from Plato's Academy. Uh, so the upcoming spring one that's here on the farm is May 13th through the 15th. And then we do it again, typically in early October. So if any of this intrigues you, we go a lot deeper uh, with actual plants and seeds at our fingertips to learn from them. Beautiful. Well, thank you very much. Yeah. Thanks, Carmen. Thanks for listening. As mentioned, the links are in the show notes. If you're enjoying the content... Please support the podcast by sharing it with your plant-loving friends and leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It helps spread the word to fellow botanical enthusiasts and grow connections. Many thanks, 
and happy growing to you.